Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Come on, show me the magic. Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies. What a scene of your Hollywood song. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week we're talking about Muso Nerd docuseries, McCartney 321. Now if you cast your minds way, way back to 2021, while the world was eagerly anticipating Peter Jackson's Get Back Redux, which was still four months away, Hulu and or Disney Plus dropped this other Beatles nugget onto their streaming platform. The show sees Paul McCartney in discussion with famed music producer Rick Rubin as they take a deep dive into Macca's back catalogue, highlighting isolated tracks within each song, recording stories, musical influences, songwriting approaches, and yes, more than a few very familiar anecdotes along the way. So first question, it feels like this show covers old ground. You know, these are the songs that have been in existence for a long time, but potentially in a new and, and generally quite exciting way. Did you find the show quite insightful or did you learn anything new from the show when it first came out? I, I certainly did learn new things, yeah. Um, I wouldn't say... I learned lots and lots of new things, but certainly that approach of isolating the various bits of the songs, uh, isolating the instruments and the vocals and things like that, and uh, being able to listen to them on their own, that really shows them in a different light. But people have been doing that sort of online ever since the Beatles rock band was released, the video game. And then mm. I think with that... The Guitar Hero spin-off thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think with that, apparently what happened was that the, there were 
for the game, there were the sort of isolated uh, instrument parts were there, and lots of people like ripped it and uploaded it to the internet so right. that people could do. So I think that's sort of the origin of where you get all those YouTube videos now, which is like here's the isolated bass or like the harmony vocals for something or something yeah. like that. You know. See, I didn't have, uh, I didn't realise that those necessarily were out there. And for me, I mean, I, I generally got really excited by this while watching it. And wasn't expecting to when I first watched it. Yeah. Um, I think that it felt to me like we were watching something that was employing new technology in order to, to give us these isolated tracks. It helps that Rick Rubin especially, but also Paul McCartney at times, get really, really excited themselves whilst playing um, yeah. certain tracks. And, and like they seem generally thrilled mm. uh, with it. But the big thing for me was like just discovering new things layered into songs that I'd been listening to all my life and hadn't realised it was there. This, probably the biggest example of that for me was this is where I first learned exactly what Paul McCartney is doing on the bass during something. Mm. And that is insane. And like, and I'm, 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 you know, I, I've been playing guitar for a long time. I'm a bit of a snobby guitar player yeah. where I kind of have always sort of written off the bass as being like, well, it's kind of like a guitar, but it's got less strings. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's completely writing I mean, off an entire half of a rhythm section there, but it's technically true. It's, yeah. it, it, it's technically true. Yeah. And genuinely listening to this particular moment in this show and, and, isolating and highlighting the bass playing underneath that that main melody of something not only made me for the first time really understand how great a bass player Paul McCartney is mm. but kind of made me fall in love with bass playing generally like just, right. as, just as an instrument as, a, as, a, as an instrument I, I guess I'd underappreciated because uh, I, I was seeing it being used in a in a different way that I, I just hadn't noticed before yeah, I, I know what you mean. I was, I mean, I was thinking while watching it that um, it's interesting. How he talks a little bit about how, like, when so well, after Stu Sutcliffe left, like someone had to take up the bass, yeah. and John and George were both like, "Well, I'm not doing it," you know. And they and he says like, you know, in Liverpool, like the bass player was always the fat guy at the back, you know, and you didn't want yeah. to be that guy, you know. But it's really interesting that he he took up what was an instrument they didn't have a lot of enthusiasm for, and of course. Being just an instinctively creative guy who w- would just get bored if he was just playing the root note, you know, yes. yeah. j- just it, it comes up with these flourishes uh, in order to entertain himself and in doing so improves the songs, you know. And I was really thinking about something is such a good example of, I think McCartney maybe more than any this, maybe this is a controversial statement, who knows, but um, uh, I think maybe more than any other Beatle, his contributions to the others' songs mm. are the ones that enhance those songs the most, I think. And something that, that feels like a bold claim, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I instinctively agree with you, yeah. But but, but yeah, I'm sure that there will be people who take issue with that. <laughs> I, I'm sure that well, it's always going to be people who take issue with things, isn't it? But uh, but actually, I mean, it, no. In fairness, you know what? That is that's quite a sweeping statement. But you know, yeah. I, I I no, I'm not going to row back on it. In fact, no. Um, but but I think I, I see what you're saying. I think that. The contributions he makes to those songs enhance the songs, but are in service of the of the song in its original form. Yeah. Whereas you could say that. So it's George Harrison coming up with that riff in uh, "And I Love Her." Yeah. Uh, which is is mentioned in the show, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. That is a, a brilliant addition to the song. Yeah. But 
makes the song as they say really, like, as they say that's yeah. the song yeah. Yeah. yeah which which by the way I, I think is brilliant that paul mccartney basically admits that but clearly that doesn't extend to an actual songwriting credit perhaps <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> yeah, yeah but um but but yeah so so those enhancements happen from the other band members in that way where a song is potentially changed yeah whereas often i feel like maybe paul mccartney's contributions on evidence of the show at least is uh they are sort of more subtle uh, enhancements yeah definitely yeah I th- yeah something is is um that bass playing he's doing is just an entire counter melody yes yeah, and, and he's such by sort of 69 he's such, he's such a virtuoso yes. i mean they, i mean they all are really yeah. but i mean they, they all know what they're doing so much and instinctively know what this song needs apparently it, that bass he was doing i think george uh, thought it was a bit busy. I think he asked him to re-record the bass, and Paul refused. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think. But the thing is, it's just see that story didn't come out in the show. Uh, no, but it, but it, but he's so often right. Yeah, you yeah. know that's the thing. And actually, and there's the interesting thing. I forget which song they're talking about. Uh, Maxwell Silverhammer, maybe or something like that. And uh, and I think he's you know he says, uh, and then I'd butt in and say, and you know, and they'd hate me for it. You know, and I said, yeah. yeah, but it's a good idea, guys. And it's really interesting, his body language when he's saying that, because he's sort of, he's looking at the floor all the way through it. And it's really interesting how he sees himself, mm. because it, 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 if you're Paul McCartney, then you you, you know that, I mean, in, in terms of your musical choices, your track track record is basically unparalleled. Like, you yeah. know, you've, you've made a few wrong turns, but who hasn't? Um, but I mean, basically, mostly most things you do are an improvement to a song. Mm. And even by sort of 69, he would have known that. He was certainly confident enough about it. And I think, I wonder whether in 69 he was less sensitive about that, but now it seems to be self-aware about it. But then, like, how could you not be? I mean, this this is so well documented. Self-aware about uh, how his input was perceived or, his, his or, tendency to meddle in things yes, and want yeah, to yeah. take over yeah, and he's talked about that hasn't he yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I get that um i think that um uh i mean i was going to ask you actually um very uh i guess important question for the show how do you think he comes across in the show because the show is very reverential yes to to, to him as a music genius Rick yeah. rubin absolutely is like completely in awe the entire way through every single episode of this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think he manages to straddle the line quite well in terms of, you know, contributing to the conversation without seeming like he's agreeing with the hype. Uh, yeah, no, I think he comes across very well. Like it's very casual and the whole way that it's shot is very intimate and very mm. casual. And I think... Um, that kind of makes it less formal, you know. It's um, but there are people you can see camera people in the background, and essentially it sort of lends it the idea that this is just a conversation two people are having that happens to be being filmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no introduction, there's no preamble. You don't get Rick Rubin saying to camera, "Oh, I'm here with Paul McCartney. I'm going to talk to him about his songs." It just starts, you know. There, there are very clear creative choices uh, made there that I think are really brilliant yeah. um, approaches to, to this material. Essentially, my first take on watching this was, "Oh, it's in black and white. I guess that looks a bit cool and artsy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but really thinking about it, it's going through. It's like 
the um the the show is all in service of the song yeah. and actually what they've cleverly done i think by having the majority of the the show apart from the archive footage the majority of the show in black and white yeah. is they've created a really clear visual signifier that this is this isn't a this isn't a visual thing this is all about the audio and and anything other than that it's kind of a distraction yeah because really you could take the 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 um the audio of this show and listen to it as a podcast like that's that is how it works that's it a is a discussion yeah. of yes. you know the music is played they're discussing the music there's stories of, there isn't anything visually to watch yeah it's great to watch them obviously and do yeah. that but yeah. but and i feel like they, there's a very clear creative choice there where they've decided to wash out the visual elements of the show yeah. to emphasize the fact that this is all about the the, the sound yeah, very true. He comes across, because it's so casual, and particularly because of the way they're dressed, especially Rick Rubin, who is in shorts and bare feet. <laughs> yeah. And and it gives the impression that actually maybe we're just in, like, Rick Rubin's studio. Uh, like, they're not. It's a it's an old church or a soundstage that's sort of built near Paul's yeah, were, house were, in the Hamptons, right? I oh, think. is that what it is? I, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know yeah. exactly where it was. But I did love the fact that frequently you'll see in the background silhouettes of traffic going past. Oh, oh, I missed that actually. Oh, there's, sure there's, right. this is quite nice. So you will have like, there's obviously a light source, like an open window somewhere. Yes. And every now and again, you'll just see like passing shadows on the wall behind them and stuff, where clearly uh, like a train or some cars or something. Right. Pass. Okay. And yeah. It just adds this, this this idea of, in my mind, that they're sort of like in this like cool sort of um, dive basement kind of type scenario, mm. listening to um the, the the console. Yeah, yeah. I think is there are points in it when. Uh, Ruben, who, as I say, is um, uh, barefoot and in shorts, um, li- quite literally sits cross-legged at Paul's feet, looking up at him, <laughs> yes. as as Paul yeah. once did to Maharishi. You know, yeah. now there's this guy, uh, you know, and the guy's got the massive beard and everything, you know, and it's just it's such a funny image <laughs> yeah. that it's just you know, tell tell me more, great one, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like you know, is, advise is. me, you know, and um, and and there is a lot of reverence in that. I mean, you can see, you can see it's kind of genuine on on Rick Rubin's part. Yeah, um, so it'd be very easy for Paul to sort of get into the mindset of being right. I, I'm I'm in charge of this situation. I'm just going to reel off all, all my anecdotes and say what I want. But actually, as well as that reverential thing, there's the kind of chat between two guys who obviously like and respect each other and sort of enjoy each other's company. Um, so there's that as well, which kind of in- encourages the slightly more casual bit. So I think, you know, he, he comes across, it, it gives him the license to come across quite, I'm not going to say humble. I don't think he comes across humble particularly, but certainly quite grounded you know? yeah no, yeah grounded word i actually was going to say humble i think that um uh there are moments where uh he said i, I can't remember what it was there there is there's a point in one of the episodes where Rick rubin plays a uh a, an isolated bass track one of the songs that's particularly great yeah and mccartney says looking back i astound myself mm-hmm not many people can get away with saying that. No, true. But he can because he, he's saying it in a way that he's surprised himself. Yeah. Not that he is like, I stand myself because I'm so good. It's like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I didn't, I forgot that I did this and it's actually pretty good as it yeah. turns out, you know. Yeah. But also he's allowed to say it because he's Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. generally speaking, he's one of the few people that have earned the right to talk about themselves like that on occasion. Yeah. But on the whole, 
I think he does come across as quite humble. He, 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 Rick Rubin does approach this with this idea of like, oh, this is brilliant, and and you've done this, and here is you know the, the tracks do, you know, the guitars are doing this one thing, but you introduce a whole other element, you're doing this other thing, and it's very celebratory of Paul's input yeah, yeah. into those songs. Yeah, but you get the impression that he feels a little bit uncomfortable answering or or being made to talk about things in that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I, I think he, I think he knows as any one of us would. Oh, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when you go to a job interview and you're and you're forced to talk about what your strengths are. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like like yeah. I know I'm good at some things, but I don't want to have to say it out loud. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. weird thing to have to do. And it right. and that, and that it kind of comes across a little bit like that. Like he, he that's when he starts sort of you know looking down at the floor, sh- like shuffling his feet a little bit. And, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite nice in a way that he still is grounded in, in like you say in that in that respect and that he's not just like yeah we did this thing and it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's nice. Well, you know, because as he says, you know, he's he, he's a fan now. You know, yeah. at the time he was doing it, now he can look back and and be a, a fan. You know, and and actually, you know, it's in the face that there are some things where Ruben is kind of. You know, he's, he's overdoing it a bit. I'm not. Sh- I don't think he's doing it deliberately. But there's there's a bit. I don't know if you noticed when, because sometimes he he would just be like astounded by something McCartney says, and it may be yeah. something that like we we all know already. You know, but the, the best bit is when Paul's talking about hitchhiking with George when they used to go and buy ambrosia rice pudding in yeah. a can, and he says, um, and I brought with me um, little uh, like a little portable camping stove. Yes, and Ruben goes. Wow, because <laughs> I just yeah. I love the fact that he's just like he's so he's just he's only saying because he's caught up in the moment. That's all yeah. it is. But it sounds like he is so amazed by the idea that Paul McCartney <laughs> once cooked ambrosia rice pudding on a camping stove. <laughs> there's there's a lot of that, isn't there? There's a lot of where Paul is talking about. I, I think there's an example is he he um paul is talking about that story about how Jimi hendrix plays Sgt. pepper mm. two days after it came out yeah then he asked eric clapton to um uh tune the star etc yeah yeah, yeah. Which he, and um and rick rubin does that thing of like and it's totally understandable like when you've got someone telling that story because they were there and and what they're invoking in that story is that time Jimi hendrix played my song mm. and then i was sitting next to eric clapton like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. Like, you can't add anything of value to that story because yeah. it's already the best story that's ever been told ever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Rick Rubin's reaction is so funny. You know? Because <laughs> yeah, there yeah, is yeah. nothing else to say. It's like, oh, yeah. that's... Wow, that's just so funny. Yeah. You know? and, and it's just like, you just end up having to sort of react in some way that just just sort of like agrees with the fact that it's the best story ever you know yeah yeah i found it really funny do you, do you remember like paul did that anecdote on stage at glastonbury this year as well like between songs oh he did didn't like, he? he yeah that's right kept yeah. it in for like his sort of on stage banter right. and i thought this and you know it i mean it's a good anecdote yeah. but at the same time it's like you're on stage in front of like a hundred thousand people like are you, are you expecting like <laughs> A, a big laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no way that you can get a big laugh <laughs> yeah, yeah. from a hundred thousand people. It's just a hundred thousand people going, oh, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hundred thousand Rick Rubens <laughs> yeah. sitting cross-legged in front of him. <laughs> Rick Rubin is pretty good as an interviewer, I think, in that respect. I think it worked. I think the dynamic between them works in that way. Yeah. Like, he he knows how to get those stories out of 
of McCartney and I think that you're right in the sense that there's that mutual respect because he is a, an acclaimed producer yeah and, and I think that's that ends up being like a bit of a relaxed approach to getting Paul to talk about these things yeah which isn't always the case you know like yeah. we've seen interviews before where the dynamic is uh, recent interviews before where the dynamic is clearly that of interviewer interviewing Oh my God, Paul McCartney. Yeah. You know, and, and he's almost embarrassed by the, the attention and treatment he's getting. Yeah. Like, I'm going to invoke the Idris Elba interview uh, <laughs> right, that okay. happened uh, when McCartney 3 came out. Yes. That whole thing of like, I can't believe I'm interviewing you, you know, and, yeah. and, Paul, and, and Paul McCartney had to put up with that. Right. This, yeah. this feels like it's a respectful, but still excitable way in to, to, to get him to talk about sort of cool stuff. Yeah, and I think and 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 because Ruben can bring stuff to the table as well, and so because he's a producer, so he's got you know the little reels he's got. Um, mm. I'm not sure like technically how it works, but you know they've they've got a desk and sort of pushing uh, faders up and down and things. So, it, so that means that he can kind of drive this a bit. Yeah. Say you know and bring it on to, and there's this song you know and do this you know it's not the same because like Idris Elba's equivalent of that was like didn't he like get his own guitar out or something he got his like own that? guitar out and said guess yeah. what chord I'm playing right <laughs> <laughs> right yeah also what came out of that which I really liked about this show is, is that when, when Ruben is asking Paul to talk about um, you know his thought process or how he approached these things and stuff yeah. his answers are always really accessible even this many decades on from when they're recorded, there's not really much in the way of technical language that Paul uses. Yeah. Um, which I found really quite refreshing. Like, so for example, they were talking about in one of the episodes how they sped up the guitar for a hard day's night. Yeah. So they played it at a, uh, in a lower pitch and then sped it up. And he says something like, um, uh, and it, it gives it this, this, this new sound. It sounds kind of ringy, almost synthetic and stuff. Yeah. Not like, an actual technical term for, you know, there being like a higher amount of reverb or something you yeah, know, that yeah, he might yeah. apply to that. Like he talks about that in a way that still makes sense to your average watcher of that show. And, and I think that kind of reinforces the idea that all of this, all of the, his creativity is just really instinctual. Yeah. It's yeah. not, it's not sort of um, learned in a sort of, you know, in a, in a formal For, sense. In a formal yeah. sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly he's very keen to stress that. And yeah. always has been. And in fact, you know, he's, I think he says during this, you know, people always, younger musicians will like say to me, you know, ask me some kind of question about music theory. And I'll say, well, I don't know. And, and they'll say, what? Uh, you know, how yeah, could you yeah. do all this without, you know, which is him very much having an imaginary conversation in his head, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure it happened because it's, yeah. pretty, it's pretty well known that he How can't. could you be so awesome without <laughs> doing training? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, but no, I think he it, it, he's always been very clear about the fact and he's obviously very proud of the fact that, that he and the other Beatles didn't have any formal music training or education. I think he had a couple of piano lessons from mm. Jane Ash's mother father i forget um when he got a bit older but other than that nothing really and yeah he's 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 kind of very very proud of that you know but it's but i think as probably get here's another mast i'm going to nail my colors to as probably <laughs> the most technically accomplished of the beatles yeah um the the interesting thing is that he um 
that he's he's around at his age and he's kind of willing and seemingly enthusiastic to do things like this and actually i think i was watching it thinking well would if john or george were around would they do a tv show like this would it interest them particularly i think i get the impression for George, no. Yeah. He wouldn't be very interested in discussing the craft of the whole thing. He Even w- though clearly he has, he did more sort of producing work going forward. Like, look at, you know, we, we covered some of his like work, the, the Travelling Wilburys, yeah. for example, and yeah. then working with Jeff Inrunner. So obviously there was an interest there for him in that kind of respect. But yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. I can't imagine him being interested in talking about it. No, exactly. No, because, I don't, you know, I don't think he was in general. You know, I mean, the anthology we know he really only did under sufferance because he needed the money you know and and i think with with john with john i think there was always there's a slight posture to it perhaps but i think there was always a sort of anti like he kind of liked he preferred the whole thing to kind of remain mysterious right and and i think it liked the idea that like yeah it's really just rock and roll once you get down to it and i can't imagine him sitting in a room and discussing strawberry fields because you know, because he would, you know, as George Martin said, you know, having visited him at the Dakota in the seventies, sometime. Oh yeah. You know, would you? John said to him, "I, you know, I'd record the whole thing again, everything again, if I could." And George said, "Or well, even Strawberry Fields," and he said, "Especially Strawberry Fields." You yeah. know, now you know he, he was given to saying inflammatory things, as we know, and who knows whether he meant it? Maybe he did at the time and then didn't mean it five minutes later. Who knows? But I think. I, I can't imagine John being all that bothered about sitting down and discussing, here's a good anecdote about us recording Strawberry Fields that the public will enjoy. Yeah, And I think Paul does think a bit more that way. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What was really interesting about it was that they weren't all just McCartney songs. Mm. I thought it was really interesting that actually they, they you know, they, they talk about something, obviously, but yeah. also like while my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. And in the very first song, All My Loving, I think is the first song that they, they talk about in the first episode. And Paul points out that John is playing the guitar, the rhythm guitar, like in quick time. Yeah, doing the tri- triplet thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, what a great thing that just ne- had never occurred to me while listening to that song before. But mm. now it's like, actually, yeah, you're right. That does change the feel of the song. Yeah, definitely. But it's him commenting on something that John's doing. Yeah. It's not actually just all about his own input. Like, I, and I feel like that's, that's quite a, a good approach to this because it could have very easily been like a, 
McCartney is great. Let's look at all the great things that he's done. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it, th- that's true. He's very eager to point out other people's contributions. Yeah, and and to talk about them, the the other three Beatles at length and like how much they contributed and how much he sort of loved and admired them. But um, when they talk about Babies in Black, he seems like very keen to talk about it because it's quite different. Like, mm. I'll be honest, uh, Babies in Black is a Beatles song I've never particularly cared for that much. I went, like, there aren't really any Beatles songs I sort of actively dislike, but it's one that, you know, they used to play it live a lot. Yeah. And every time it sort of came up in a clip at a live show, I think, oh, why are you playing this live? You've got, you know, you've got much better songs. But actually, the way they talk about it being performed live, because Paul talks about it as like a bit of a turning point. So, you know, if this is 64, Beatles for Sale, he described it as a bit of funky folk, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, you look at it and think, oh, yeah, this is quite different. You know, as Rick Rubin points out, it's very it's, diff- you can't, it's difficult to dance to. Yes. You know, and it, yeah, would, yeah. It, would, it would slow a gig down. And sort of lyrically, it's a bit of a departure too, right? I mean, because it's sort of moving on that theme they kind of went on to explore with things like, Yes, it is, and for no one, just sort of relationships gone wrong, or the darker elements of relationships, and sort of hints of sort of female depression and things like that. Mm. You know, it, it just a, a sort of because yeah, I I had really just thought of that song as like one of their earlier ones that was a bit throwaway, and I didn't care for that much. Yeah, and it made me think about it in a different way, which is exactly what this whole it's, it's show is about. designed to do, right? In a similar way, there's that bit where. Um, Paul is sat at the piano and he talks about songwriting and about how it feels like a very rudimentary thing to have to have Paul McCartney explain. <laughs> but when he is literally like, if you find middle C on a piano <laughs> and then put your other finger on E yeah, yeah. and then your other finger on G, yeah. you've got a chord and you can move up uh, up or you can move down. Yeah. And and I and I <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um but uh, but I remember like I was watching that and I was like, oh, you got Paul McCartney talking about what is a basic chord shape, right? Yeah. Uh, 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 and uh, I don't mean that as a you know like, come on, guys, everyone knows how to play piano, but like you, know, you don't need Paul McCartney to explain like the how to play C on a piano. Right. But what is interesting is that that he he then takes it in a new direction because he's he's kind of talking about the, the basics. And then he says, I saw John Legend the other day mm. playing a song and that's doing the same thing. And he starts playing a bit of that. Yep. And then he turns around and says, or, you know, you could turn it into Let It Be. And and basically he says, Cole Jetson starts playing Let It Be. And it's like, right. oh, God, that's brilliant. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. that is really invaluable to, to be able to sort of connect those dots. Yeah. And, you know, no one needs to know how to play C, but to, to, to have this idea of, if you know that some chords, you can play anything you like, essentially. And then to prove it by tracking it through to one of your best known, uh, one of the best known songs ever, mm. uh, was just it was kind of special to to sort of take it to that place. Yeah, definitely. Also, there's a bit where he just sits down and starts to make a, another point that he's in making at the time. He turns around and says, "You know, this is a thing that I'm writing at the moment." It's yeah, like, oh right. my god, we're like watching Paul McCartney actually showcase something that he's mid composition of, like, yeah. and it was pretty good. Yeah, and yeah, Rick yeah, Rubin yeah. makes that, and, and there's a really I, I don't know how uh, how prevalent this opinion is of McCartney's music, but Rick Ruby makes the point when he hears that by uh, of saying that sounds like a, a song that already exists, not mm. in a way that you copied it, but because it's like you know a song that 
that like is in the air. I think yes. is what it says. Yes. And McCartney sometimes says, you know, that's how I've always written. And it is like mm. in all those songs, they are they they follow. He, he's always writing songs that follow familiar patterns. Mm. I think, um, and um, and it's really interesting to hear them actually talk about that. Yeah. You know, you know, I know we had the same. We always have the yesterday anecdote of I thought someone had, had already written it, and having to like ask around. You know, what is this song and stuff? But like that yeah. is kind of like how he works, and to have him sort of like address that in conversation about you know he's. He comes to that conclusion of Mo- someone said of Mozart that he likes notes that work or that work together well or that like each other. Notes that like each yeah, other. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, I think um, there's an interesting bit when uh, when he's telling the yesterday scrambled eggs anecdote. Yeah. For the for the you know millionth time I've heard him do it, but um, because we're sort of in this space where we're sort of talking about his his creativity, so maybe I thought about it in a slightly different way. I thought so. Because he has told that anecdote before about dreaming this song and and says, you know, you know, this can't be mine. It's like you don't get that lucky. But I was thinking, like, it's not luck, is it? It can't be because you and I don't go to bed, have and dream a song, you know, Mm. even a bad one. Like, you know, and wake up in the morning with the song more or less fully formed and be able to just get out the guitar or the piano and and figure out the chords and say, oh, yeah, maybe this is a thing. It doesn't happen to us. Yeah. And it and it happens to very few people, you know. But it happened to him, and it happened to him, and he got out of it one of the most popular and well-known songs of the 20th century. And that's not a coincidence. He's not just lucky, right? Yes, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. There is, I don't know whether that's part of his gift or whatever, but it's just in him, right, you know. But that, do, you, do you think that is him being modest, or do you think that's him playing modest? Uh... When he said, like, oh, you know, you don't get that lucky. Um, when did he say that? That was pro- that was anthology, I think. Right. Um, I think at that time, I don't... At that time, he might have been playing modest, I think, perhaps. But, yeah, it, it's, it speaks to... Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, it speaks to a sort of innate musicality, but also mm-hmm. the, the fact that... And he says in this, this documentary, too, that it's very rare that he and John had a songwriting session and didn't finish a song you know, yeah. didn't come away with something at yeah. least which is interesting because actually J- John's work ethic was not fantastic in general you know he was in- instinctively quite lazy mm. and Paul describes like going around to see him and writing here there and everywhere while he waited for John to get yes, out of bed right. yeah. You know? yeah, yeah so it, and it, it can't just have been that Paul always cajoled him along and John was always being lazy it must have been that they uh, just sparked off each other and what, mm. when they were in the room th- they kind of kept each other honest you know creatively and and wanted were motivated enough to sort of impress and please each other yeah uh, that that they always got something out of it you know and I, I think that um getting something out of it is really interesting because that is something that really comes across on the show like he genuinely seems really excited about hearing some elements of these songs that he knows inside out as if he's hearing them for the first time, or as if he's hearing them for the first time since recording them. Mm. Um, and there were some brilliant moments where, he, and I really like seeing him get a real thrill out of 
like when they listen to the Penny Lane trumpet solo, the piccolo trumpet solo, <laughs> and like and it hits that high note, and yes. he like raises his finger up, and it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah, 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 like and you know yeah, it's all yeah. a bit a bit of a dad reaction, you know, like you know it's all like <laughs> yeah, he's course. all like, but he does those kind of like movements with his hands, where he's like you know this is how it goes, and and you know there's the bit where they're playing, oh god, I think it's back. Uh, back in the USSR, yeah, and he's actually taken over the console and he's playing like it, he's moving the faders <laughs> yes, up, like yeah. in rhythm to the song, sort of that. And it's yeah. like, I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean 4, he doesn't act very well, right? <laughs> like, uh, that is genuine excitement and and the thrill of of, of enjoying that music and, and getting into it and stuff. And that's what's really good to, to see, like the passion come through, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real sense that he is very. Um, comfortable with his place in the world and his place in music history. Um, There's a really interesting thing he says, and I forget which bit it's in, but at one point he says, we thought we were different. We knew we were different. And then that found its way into the music. And I found that really interesting Mm because I'm not sure if I've heard him speak like that before. That's a slightly unspoken element of the Beatles story the idea that you know th- these guys were obviously incredibly special and it must have been obvious yeah he, he tends to downplay it doesn't he he's like his his line on this is like we're a good little band you know, like, <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah, yeah that's interesting yeah like, this idea of there being like a, a bit of a an, an otherness to them yeah yeah and and actually so the, like there's other films we've talked about when we were talking about birth of the Beatles the idea that the performances by the cover band Rain, um, did not get across that they were good, competent rock and roll performances, but they didn't get across the the idea that these guys were special and that they were different. Mm. Uh, Whereas I think sort of backbeat kind of did because of the sort of changed atmosphere in the room when they were performing, that kind of thing. And I think Beatles films and TV shows are are always based on the idea that this was special. You know, you have all these people... Who will sort of come on documentaries, talking heads, talking about you know, talk about how special this whole thing was, and about how it changed everything. And the Beatles themselves, you know, that thing, you know, they that whoever it was said, maybe George, you know, like being in the eye of a hurricane, you know, mm-hmm. everything is changing all around you, and you're kind of in the middle of it, you know. But yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm sure I, I, I must be wrong. He must have done before, but like, I, I can't really remember. It him speaking that way about the Beatles before you know we yeah. knew we were different and because it's interesting because I, I I often find uh, when you have conversations with people who bizarrely aren't massive Beatles nerds um, it's difficult to explain what that sort of extra something is that makes them worthy of, mm. of such respect and actually you can imagine that modern audiences they might just think, well, they were a band that just happened to be doing the right thing at the right time. Yeah. As opposed to there being that sort of innate musicality or that innate talent that, that sort of drove the, the change as opposed to it happening all around them, yeah. as, as George has said. What this show does really well uh, in terms of discussion points as well is when it talks about or when it gives Paul McCartney uh, an excuse to talk about what they did during the recordings that made those that music special as well. So things like, uh, I found it really interesting. And I, and I guess there's a bit of a barrier to this, right? Because there's only so much that, that other people might find this interesting. But I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd about this stuff. I kind of like knowing sort of recording stories and things 
But when they're talking about things like Nowhere Man and how they had everything turned up, all the treble turned up on the guitar, but then found a way to, to plug the guitar sound into another EQ so that they could turn the treble on that as well. And actually then when you know that story and then hear that song again as they play it, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I can hear how that guitar has a completely different tone to anything that would have come before it. Mm. Um, and, and I can hear what you mean by it. It never would have occurred to me to listen to that song, but now I can see that that is like a, whatever whatever you'd call it, like a double trebled um, guitar sound, right? Yes, that's definitely um, what it's called. That's definitely what it's called, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, all, the, all the sound producers would be calling it that. Sure. But there's a lot of those kind of insights that come out of this show where where, where it feels like it's Paul McCartney revealing how they achieve certain sounds or, or just how they would find ways to sort of push the rules and then that led to um, sort of different sounds and, and you know, innovations. Yeah, of course, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, you grow up sort of reading the books and 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 you learn all these things about how, you know, the feedback on I, I Feel Fine is like the first the first ever bit of feedback on a record yeah. or whatever, you know. And I, I, I'm never sure exactly how completely true these things are. But, but just the fact that the guy is prepared to sit down and, and have these conversations yeah. is just really remarkable. It's like I often think about Paul, you know, like imagine you're 80 and every single person you meet wants to talk to you at length about a period of your life <laughs> that ended when you were 28. You know. God. But, like, you know, imagine... And, and actually, like, you've done lots and lots of stuff since then. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's not that people are completely uninterested in that. They're, they're a bit interested in that. But mainly they want to talk about this thing that happened to you that, you know, it, that was literally, like, 62 years ago it yeah. ended. And... But just imagine what that's like. And and it's like you could be forgiven for just never wanting to engage in those conversations. Yeah, but I never want to leave the house, right? <laughs> like, literally. Because yes. you're right. It would yes. be every single person. Every person. Yeah. yeah every, everyone you meet. And, you know, of course, you, you're one of the most recognizable people in the world as well. But, you know, lo- lots of people have a, a, a roughly equivalent level of fame and recognition. But that thing of you must be people must just want to have the same conversations with you all, all the time, you know? And I always think, I always think if I ever it, it, like bumped into him, like I have heard that he does, he doesn't want to do selfies and autographs and which is, yeah. which is fair enough, you know? And, uh, and so like, I often think, well, what, what would I, I, I you know what? It, I would probably just ask him a question that like, I don't know the answer to, and I don't, and I haven't what, read it. What anyway. would be your opener? You, you've thought about this. Yes, I have. Yeah. I, would like to because I don't know this information, yeah. And having recently done it myself, I would like to know when and how he gave up smoking cigarettes. Oh, okay, yeah. Because that's because he did so he definitely was a heavy smoker. Yeah, certainly during band on the run sessions, I think he had. I think it's some kind of fainting fit because he was smoking too much and it was so hot. I feel like I've seen recent pictures of him um, with joints yes so he still he, he still, still, yeah. still smokes weed a bit i think right, okay but cigarettes i don't think he does yeah well, that's interesting yeah. and and certain yeah and certainly there was a point when he did and like yeah i would really like to know when and how he did that yeah just because it's not documented and well maybe it is but i just haven't seen it well, obviously i'd ask him about some wings deep cuts that mm. i don't feel like gets enough attention yeah and i guess on that note it was really nice um, I say that like it's patronising, but it was really good that the show does, on occasion, explore 
post Beatles stuff from McCartney. So yeah. I think at one point we look, uh, you know, we listen to Waterfalls. Yeah, there's obviously quite an extended bit where he talks about Live and Let Die and how he wrote that. Mm. There's a bit where he sits at the piano um, and he's talking about how he wrote Live and Let Die. And, and when he sits on the piano, the first thing he said, uh, says is, oh, like, I can't even think, how does it go again? It's like, like you haven't been playing it at every single gig <laughs> for the last 20 years. Yes. Yeah. And, and I guess probably most impressively is when they, a very, very short amount of time spent on listening to Check My Machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Which fun. That's quite a nice little... Um, that is fun. Yeah, yeah. I would have liked a little bit more Wings. Um, yeah, and, and, and um, you know, there's a part of me that's hoping there's a McCartney three, two, one, two. Uh, that's in the works <laughs> <laughs> that, that where we can um, we can focus more on his um, his, his post Beatles career because there's so much to explore there as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting when they play Waterfalls and yeah. Rick Rubin says to him like, "It's a very modern melody." Yeah, and McCartney goes, "Oh, do you think like you know?" And Rubin's like, "Yeah, definitely." <laughs> but, yeah. but 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 you know, this is a guy who. It really understands like modern music production, mm. you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, and um, and I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, I can't quite articulate it, but I kind of think I know what he means. Waterfalls is a song, well, obviously it's a song that TLC like uh, it's based their song on, but like, but in terms of it, if that came out now and it was done, it like quite a sort of sparse electronic keyboard arrangement by someone like sort of Solange or someone like that, you know, just, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I can, I can really hear that working, you know, and I, and I know, what he, I know what he means. And it's just interesting that he picks up on things like that, but also that Paul, someone is basically saying to Paul, this thing that you wrote in 1980 sounds a lot like things that people right now, right. Are yeah. writing now. And, and, you know, there are people, lots of people, you know, look back on McCartney too and think, so much of this sounds incredibly contemporary. Yeah. You know? And that may yeah, be because, you know, musical trends and styles have sort of gone gone full circle as they always do. Yeah. Um, but it's also just because, you know, I mean, this guy was just mucking about with synth- synthesizers and, and 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 limiters, you know, and he got his got his Roland and uh and, you know, check my machine is quite literally something he came up with to test <laughs> to yes. check his machine, to yeah, test if yes. it was working. Yeah. yeah. And it's brilliant, you know. <laughs> and I think uh, I think like Will I Am talks a lot about Check My Machine oh, as a is like an influence, right? Oh, it's like a song that he listened to a lot when he was younger. Yeah, you know? oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think I think McCartney responds really well to that kind of comment in this show. Yeah, um, and you're right that that Rick Rubin knows how to articulate those kinds of things. The one of the sort of the main points that are made throughout each episode is that often what a song is doing is you've got one core element of the song like a, a main melody of the song that has a particular feel but actually what they've done recording studio by adding to it is is sort of essentially kind of meshing a different genre of music to that feel mm. so like they they split he has a really good thing where you where um he isolates the bass in while my guitar gently weeps and it's yeah. so heavy yeah it's not it's not melodic it's just, it is mm. very very sort of bass uh, very heavy very distorted yeah and then he does that thing where like you know we listen to that and he plays that down and then plays the other music that's happening at, uh, at the same time and mm. that's just like a really sweet ballad yeah and it's only when you have both of them playing together mm. that you then you get the full sense of the, the song that we all know yeah but and, and I, I do feel like that sometimes that point is being made by Ruben as they're listening to those tracks and it's making McCartney think yeah you're right actually yeah this is you know this has a this has a country feel but actually there's like a, a folksy thing happened that we decided to put to it and it's the it's the 
sort of the the clashing of those two things that mm. that make the song what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, yeah, I think there's a sense that he he's getting a lot out of this process. Yeah. You know, he's he's enjoying this process. You know, and you know, even you know, it must be it must be good for the ego for a start. But I mean, yeah. uh, but also. Just fun, I guess, you know, because as I say, like, if you're prepared to engage with this thing, you know, mm. it's not like, you know, how like, actors will always say, oh, you know, I can't stand to watch myself, you know, yes. uh, which is yeah. uh, fair enough. You can, you can understand why. McCartney's like uh, quite happy to listen to himself, you know, but, uh, and like I say, it's like, if you, you, there are plenty of people who just would not want to, yeah, would not want to think about the things they've done before. In quite this way, and interrogate it, you know, and the the concept helps with that as well, because you can imagine there's a version of this show which is we're going to sit down with Paul McCartney in a uh, studio, we're going to play him here, there, and everywhere, or let it be, or something like, and and it's playing the song, and then being like, now tell us about that song, whereas this really is breaking it down in its component parts, and and that's just it does generally feel like this is a thing that. He probably hasn't had an opportunity to ever do mm. since recording it. Yeah. So it's, it is generally exciting and it feels like a new experience for him in these songs that he knows inside out. And and it's just, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a great gateway into those kinds of stories as opposed to just asking them to come up with them uh, and, 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 you know, churn out the same kind of anecdotes that mm. he always does because we're just playing him the normal version of the song. Yeah. I, I suppose like it occurs to me that a similar thing always happens on um is it vh1 classic albums mm. where there's always the producer in the studio who is fading bits down and showing you know and showing you oh there's this bit you know it, yeah, like right. the, like the individual parts of it that, that tends to be part of that uh, of that documentary um so yeah certainly they've done one on plastic ono band certainly oh, really? where you know you, it, it sort of isolates john doing you know the big big screams and all that kind of stuff right i haven't seen that um but yeah so i mean uh, I, i'm sure the technology they're using here is quite different because especially with the early stuff isolating it would only have been something that you could do with uh, with more recent technology yeah like say, but they do know. it to um is it this boy in one of the later episodes of the show yeah and, and, and when they do it with that that was the, i was like oh so you can do this then you yeah. know this this whole sort of question about whether or not there will be eventually some sort of remixed um versions of their early albums mm. like that that sounded pretty good in terms of isolating tracks on that song and yeah it kind of proves that the technology is there to ex- uh, that exists and uh, that, that should allow for those kind of releases yeah i mean and if if they weren't actually using this uh certainly the the ai that peter jackson and his team yeah. developed that can now apparently identify this is the sound of George Harrison talking or singing mm. and uh, and therefore take that and isolate it because it's learned that that is George Harrison's voice. I mean, that has implications. How far are we... How far is that AI from just learning how to write new Beatles songs? Brilliant. And reproduce George's voice at any given time. Right. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. How, how far is that AI from being able to uh, isolate the minds of John Lennon and Paul McCartney and therefore write songs and the mind of George Harrison and therefore to be able to uh, complain about not getting, not getting the spot on this. <laughs> Maybe that's the only way we'll ever get around to, to hearing a completed version of this third anthology song that they completed. Right. Yeah. 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 Just get the AI to finish it. 
get get the Beatles bot on the case. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. It's definitely coming. Uh, was there any particular moment in the series that uh, stood out for you? That was particularly fun. Like for for example, one thing that I was going to say was I actually liked Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds. I think where uh, they isolate some of the vocals and there's like a mangled vocal in there. It was like, ah, and, and Paul's <laughs> immediately like, like you know, turns the volume off and is like, oh, this is why we don't do this. Um, and I thought that was brilliant. That's really good that that's, um, that's a thing that has never been picked up before that we didn't realize existed. And yeah, uh, you know, that was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's laughing at himself, but he's yeah. also, it's interesting that's in there at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, as opposed to be, you know, as opposed to being removed completely, it's just buried in the mix. It's just literally been buried. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As per the traveling Wilbury's yes. ethos, you Will Berry. Will Berry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like one one of the things, uh, like we talked about, how he, he's sort of doing the the A to Z of McCartney anecdotes, and um, and and of course, big fans have heard uh, heard these before, but you have to bear in mind that you. Each time you release something new like this, you are trying to get a new audience as well. Yeah, that's true. And so Get Back certainly knows that. Get Back, uh, the fact that it has the nous to put a narrative into its documentary and put in sort of uh, um, a time limit, you know, conflict yes. and resolution, essentially. Because yeah. you, you could just release it and say, well, here's a load of footage of the Beatles rehearsing. And big yeah. fans like you and me will be like, "Wow, brilliant! Give, yeah, me, yeah, yeah. give me another eight hours of it." So funny. Um, but but um, but you also need to encourage a new audience in. You know, mm. new audiences are sort of learning about the Beatles all the time. You know, because it, it's often said, "Why don't why doesn't someone just put the anthology on Netflix to get you know because that, that's the complete story and you know just for new fans." And I think the answer is that the talking heads in it are now thirty years old. Yeah, and also uh, that's just, that anthology has aged badly. Yeah, it it, it looks it it looks. I mean, you could watch that now as yeah. a as a fifteen year old or whatever, as I was when I saw it, and think, oh, th- this documentary was made a long time ago. It's, yes, it, it's, of course, not, yeah. it's not just this is about an old thing. It's this yeah, this yeah. actual documentary is old. The people in it are wearing clothes from the nineties and stuff like that. You know, it's very it's very obvious. And it does. It doesn't look all that amazing. So even if you digitally enhance the whole thing, it would still look that way. So I, I'm not sure that that would particularly encourage new fans. And I think no, that really. Apple are, have always been pretty canny about understanding that and understanding how to bring new fans on board. Releasing on the streaming platforms in general is is obviously the way to go. And and things like this, obviously McCartney knew that Get Back was coming up. There wasn't any real need for him to make this, presumably, mm. right? I presume he just no, thought it was interesting, and th- and also perhaps um, a, a thing after lockdown where he, you know, could get out and do something, <laughs> just get out of the house a bit. Well, because I'm not sure when it was shot, but certainly you can see that camera people have masks on, so it must right. have been, you know, du- during the COVID during period that. at some point. You know, I think you're right though. Um, uh, I mean, first of all, it's interesting that no, none of the songs from Get Back are featured uh, in this, so I think that's probably a yeah. Um a deliberate choice. Yeah. But I think that you're right in that it's more about the legacy of the thing, isn't it? And if you're going to attract new audiences, get back does that job of uh showing the Beatles in a very modern way of them in their prime. Yeah. Whereas this is more about the 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 other angle of talking about the same thing. This is a deconstruction of of, of what 
uh, they did at that time. And I think what it what ultimately what it does is successfully argue why the music should be held in such high regard as it is. Yes. And which which you don't get immediately from get back. You get you get them you get them in the moment, you get the creative process. Mm. But this is a real deconstruction of what it means to 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 sort of have that special creative talent and and why it's so important. Yeah, very true. I do I do think there's a couple of like interesting uh, asides in it that I think are worth sort of uh, worth highlighting because mm-hmm. there are things when he's being asked like quite specific questions. Do you remember when he was asked? So it's while my guitar gently weeps, and Rick Rubin says to him, "When Eric Clapton turned up, what, yeah. did you th- did you think of him as George's friend, or did you think of him as the guy from uh, from Cream?" And Paul immediately says, "George's friend." Yeah, straight away. Yeah, like, and I thought that was really interesting about that dynamic. I think he and Eric Clapton get on well. Uh, these days, I, I, I'm not saying they didn't get on well at the time, but it was very much this is George's mate. But I'm sure there must be lots of people who were just around at the time on the scene, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And people who you met, you know, you, you know, you, you're in a club and there's a couple of guys from the Animals and one of the guys from the Stones or whatever, and um, and so some of them might become sort of proper friends, as Eric and George definitely became proper close friends, you know. And other people who are just on, you know, just around in general, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, of course. But yeah, I wonder whether actually that thing in Get Back where George leaves and John says, well, you know, we'll give him till Tuesday and then we'll get Eric Clapton in. <laughs> yeah. And he, I mean, he's half joking, but yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's sort of, it, 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 Clapton's around and he's sort of on the periphery, I suppose. You know, he's sort of Beatle adjacent in that way that not, not a lot of people are. And there's very few people who have, you know, actually... Uh, other than session musicians who have sort of played on Beatles songs, you know, that's a big deal. We haven't really talked about yet the archive footage that the show presents, which I only mention because I think there are some really good instances uh, in in the show, in Mm. certain episodes. I think it's really interesting when they talk about the Hard Day's Night guitar riff, for example, and about how that sped up. There's actually a bit where they they play that slowed down yeah. and it's just, just as an illustrative uh, thing. Yeah. I also think that probably what was a bigger standout for me is there are stories that McCartney tells in this, which I've heard before, but what the show does is actually present like footage that, that backs it up. So when he's talking about musical influences, for example, and he talks about James Jameson. Mm-hmm. The, it the, is James Jameson, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and about how um, he introduced Paul to like this idea of like a melodic bass yeah. or whatever. And actually being able to then see footage of him doing that. Uh, it's really? like, oh yeah, I get that. Actually, that makes yeah. sense. And also, I heard the story all the time about how Paul was watching concertos uh, where he had the piccolo trumpet player. Right, okay. That yeah. then inspired him to want to bring in someone to play that uh, on Penny Lane. Yeah. And they they actually show some footage of whether it was what he was actually watching at the time, like who knows. But mm. it was it was um, actual footage of that, which I've never seen alongside that before. So to give, give a, a proper sense of what it was that he would have been watching that would have made him pick out that particular instrument. Yeah. To, to then take to George Martin the next day was quite interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because it, it, yeah, if you remember, like Get Back does a similar thing where George is talking about, you know, I, you know yes. I wrote this last night. I was watching this thing on TV and it's I'm in mine. And he says, oh, there was this waltz thing. And they find 
because they've got the dates and they can find what it was he was watching on TV yes. and they show you. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I really like that thing of, you know, we, we you hear these stories so often about, um, you know, John was reading the Daily Mirror and here was the story about this and he put, you know, the holes in Blackburn, Lancashire, you know, he took this yes. story, you know, and so, yeah. and it's really nice. And, you know, people like Mark Lewison are really good at bringing that to life and saying, you know, th- this newspaper was published on this date, so John would have read it on this date, and, all this yeah. kind of, you know, and um, and this is a really nice, pleasing uh, visual way to do that. And yes, I, yeah, I felt the same about the piccolo trumpet thing, because I sort of know, I, I know kind of half that story, you know, and that thing about the guy saying, well, it, you know, the note doesn't really get, get up that high. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and Paul being, I like, he's really good at telling, again, it's a, you can tell it's a practiced anecdote, but he's yeah. very good at telling it because he will do a, a bit of body language in it as well. You know? Yeah. And he'll say, you know, oh, you, you sure? Yeah, maybe you could give yeah, it a go. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, um, yeah. It's like, like, it's just sort of like cheeky smile on his face yeah. where he's been like, you can do it though. You yeah. can do it. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think, you know, and that's not the only uh, that's not the only thing in the documentary where he talks a bit about them being slightly disruptive in terms mm. of uh, EMI being mainly set up for classical musicians. You know, it's like, well, you know, wh- where's the? Um, there's a setting on the desk that says this is pop and this is classical. You know, yeah. and um, or why can't we have the classical one? You know, yeah. and uh, I, I like that idea. He 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 always makes a lot of hay about that. Of when they brought in a string quartet or whatever, it was mm. just him kind of singing a. You know, oh, I want it to go like this, and then they start transcribing it. You know that kind yeah. of thing. And I think that certainly they were. They talk. They talk about day in the life in this, where they ask the orchestra, like, right, go from your lowest note to your highest note, and you know, and the observation about the the, the strings, <laughs> the, the strings and the horns and the woodwinds. You know, they would all kind of stick together, and they'd watch each other and say, yeah, "Oh, yeah. they're going up. Oh, I'll go up as well." Um, by the way utterly mad that that actually worked yes i know i think like, that yeah li- literally just say it, whatever key your instrument is in go yeah. from your lowest note to your highest note yeah it is insane that it sounds <laughs> as good that should sound like an absolute mess car crash yeah exactly and, yeah. and it's it's utterly utterly mad that it works <laughs> but you, i mean you can say that about a lot of their stuff you know but yeah i, I like and, and and i think apparently there were was it that day in the live session or there there certainly were um, class, uh, classical, I say classical, you know, um, orchestral session players who came in and just refused to do what they were yes, being asked to do or, that, or yeah. walked out, you know, or, yeah. or said, this is ridiculous, this is not what we're, you know. And that, that puts a lot for, of stuff into concept, doesn't it? Because when you mentioned before about how the, the Beatles would look at the console and be like, well, that one's set for classical, why can't we have that? Mm. The thing I like about Paul telling that story is he calls out that, that they were wrong about that like you know like mm. the idea in their heads that they had at the time was that it was a better set of eqs but obviously right. it's not it's just set to a different type of music right right so yeah. like the way he tells the story is that he's he's kind of admitting that there was a, almost like a working class chip on their shoulder a little <laughs> bit where they're they're being like oh you're you're reserving the good stuff for like proper music and we're just rock and rollers you know yeah um i kind of like the way he presents that as a they were sort of young and naive about that kind of thing and, and weren't always, you know, there's, there's being disruptive, but then there's just assuming that the people in the studio are working against you because you're yeah. not, you, you don't have that sort of belief in yourself to be seen as a proper musician. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it really highlights as other conversations in this uh, series do, uh, uh, like the effect that George Martin had. And, and I think, I think we all know, 
you know music musically the the influence he had uh, and the things he achieved but but i think also just in terms of just sort of shepherding them towards certain things without discouraging certain things Mm. because certainly you know that whole thing of right at the start of their emi career you know here's this song it's called how did you do it that you're going to record this Um, because producers did pick songs for artists to do that was part of the producer's job yeah uh, the A and R man, as as George Martin was, and the the fact that he let them get away with saying no a, mm. at all is remarkable. Yeah, because I, I th- there are very few producers who would have done, and, and from that point on, uh, just such a it's such an eager collaborator, of course, but also just uh, there's so many things they wanted to do that were just a bit mad, and and I I I guess that he just kind of thought quite pragmatically that like every time these lads ask me to do something a bit weird it generally turns out amazing yeah so i'm just gonna say yes yeah i'm just gonna let them but, see but, what happens also, and- i actually found really interesting in this as well was um when, when paul is talking about how george would work out their backing harmonies and he'd be like you know this is the chords to doing this mm. george i want you to play this and he'd and he'd, he's demonstrating it on the piano right it's yeah. like these are three notes that work in the three chords that we're doing this so that and yeah. i want you to do this and i was like oh that's really interesting because i hadn't heard that before no. in this way i kind of i guess there's a part of me that assumed that they kind of worked on those harmonies themselves or that a, a part of it was that it was natural based on their range yeah um but it was quite interesting that just this idea of, of of being able to it was quite interesting to see the process the the literal process by which george would sort of dictate certain harmonies to to make it work for them yeah and there's a, it's a kind of rare admission of a sort of concession to form and structure actually because i think we're always told that the beatles sense of harmony was very natural which which it, it is true i'm sure but also they kind of learned that three-part harmony thing particularly from sort of black american uh, female r&b groups a lot of the time yeah. um and that but yeah it's true that if you think about it, it even just in terms of practically in terms of them just being in the studio you know if you're going to do something like uh this boy or you know later on because or something like yeah. that you know yeah. are you going to sit down and figure out those harmonies all the way through you know and it would make complete sense for george martin to to guide them in that yes no, yeah, not that they would necessarily be incapable of doing it themselves but just that's kind of what a producer needs to do right yeah yeah, yeah no it makes sense as well. and i think that when you said it like in terms of it being a rare admission you mean like a rare admission from paul to to explain that that's how it worked yeah because yeah. i because the other thing as well about it was that I, there were some times when when Rick Rubin is playing uh, an, an isolated track from one of the songs and he's saying, so who, who's doing this bit or who's doing this bit on guitar? And there's a bit where, you know, on a couple of occasions, Paul's kind of looking down and shuffling his feet being like, oh, I don't know, it might be me. I don't, I don't know. Actually. It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, it was you. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then there are other times when he openly admits like, and without being prompted, um, oh, that piano bit there, that was arpeggios. That's a bit too fancy for me. That's mm. probably George who did that. Yeah, and like, and there was no need for him to call that out. But actually, it was quite refreshing of him to call out the fact that actually he 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 said I was quite good at piano, but I wouldn't have been able to have done that. Yeah, you know, and that's that's quite illustrates his idea of a lack of ego on his part. I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, it's interesting how he sees himself as a pianist. He's obviously a very good and very accomplished one. But yeah, yeah that that kind of thing. 
just doing arpeggios on a thing. It, even that is, is quite formal, just kind yeah. of sitting down uh, arpeggiating chords or even thinking to do it in the first place. I'm out, I think, of partly three to one observations. I think is there I anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I think that's me done as well. Oh, well, I hope if you are listening to this, you have enjoyed our deep dive deconstruction of the deep dive deconstruction series, McCartney 321. <laughs> Full on meta analysis there. If you have enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a review and say nice things about us. You can also follow us on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. Either way, we will see you next week for another episode. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Bye-bye.